Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's show, it's all about the Atlanta City Detention Center. Again, we know it's expected to be leased to Fulton County, but not before a jail population review study is to be conducted. However, Fulton County Sheriff Patrick Labatt says he can't wait. I am moving in a space where people's lives are in danger. Since you met last, we had someone openly murdered in our facility. Come by, I'll show you the videotape if you want to see it. Because sometimes you need to see in order to believe. Now, the ACLU of Georgia and other human rights organizations are calling on the city to actually reverse the lease entirely. So we'll have more about that in just a moment. Also this hour, the Atlanta Citizen Review Board launches a new online portal for police accountability. It's 24 hours. We'll learn all about that. Plus, $8 million has been gifted to Achieve Atlanta for their work with Atlanta Public School students. All that's just ahead. But first, this. Health facilities health facilities across the city are preparing for Wellstar Health System's closure of the Atlanta Medical Center emergency room this Friday as we hear from Jess Mador. In preparation for the shutdown, Wellstar Health System began diverting ambulances from AMC's emergency department last week. The diversions followed Wellstar's announcement it planned to close the ER two weeks sooner than it initially announced. For now, Wellstar's pushing patients to seek care at nearby hospitals, including Piedmont Atlanta Hospital, Emory University Hospital Midtown, and Grady Memorial Hospital. But because of its proximity to AMC, Grady is expected to see the most. And when the rest of AMC Hospital closes November 1st, it'll leave Grady as the only level one trauma center in the city. Jess Mador, WABE News. Meanwhile, also related to Grady, the DeKalb County Board of Commissioners have approved Michael, CEO Michael Thurman's proposal for $20 million, which he says will enhance emergency services at Emory Hillendale Hospital and to support nursing services at Grady Hospital. Now, today is the last day to register to vote for the November midterm elections. WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass will give you all the details. You can register to vote online if you have a valid driver's license or ID card issued by the Georgia Department of Driver Services. Otherwise, print a paper application to return by mail or in person to your local election office. The online voter registration portal and the printable forms are available on the Georgia Secretary of State's website. That's also where you can double-check your voter registration using the My Voter page. Now's a good time to do that. If you've moved, you'll need to change the address on your voter registration. If you've got questions or concerns, calling your county election office is probably the best bet. So far, the site Georgia Votes says more than 190,000 people have submitted new voter applications for the general election. The first day of early voting begins October 17th. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. And a reminder to check with your county elections offices to determine where you can vote in person early. In other news, Comp County has rejected challenges that would have thrown out more than 1,300 voter registrations. As we hear from our other politics reporter, Raul Bali, the decision comes just days before the midterm elections. Two residents challenged 1,350 voter registrations based on missing apartment numbers or, in the case of Kennesaw State University, no dorm address. Eugene Williams says he challenged 118 registrations based on data used by direct marketers. Every one of them are missing a needed apartment number or unit number or suite number to identify the particular place this person is supposed to live at. They can't 
they can't mail them anything. There's just no way to locate where they actually physically live, and I think that's wrong. Challenging voter registrations has become common after the passage of Georgia's 2021 election law. It allows voters to file unlimited numbers of them. Election officials have complained they use up resources. On Monday, Cobb County's Board of Elections rejected all of the challenges. Chairwoman Tori Silas said there was not enough detailed information about each individual challenge. Instead, they were grouped together. This board is not required to make an individual inquiry. Uh, we are to evaluate uh, each challenge on its face. Eugene Williams says he intends to file new challenges to Cobb voter rolls after the midterms. Several voting rights groups tracking voter registration challenges say there have been 65,000 in 10 Georgia counties over the past year. Only about 3% of those have resulted in the removal of a voter for things like having moved. Raul Bally, WABE News. And finally, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has approved new names for nine military bases, including Fort Gordon and Fort Benning, all here in Georgia. In a memo released last week, Secretary Austin confirmed recommendations from the commission tasked with finding new names for military bases associated with the Confederacy. Fort Gordon near Augusta will be renamed Fort Eisenhower after the former president, Dwight Eisenhower, and five-star general. Fort Benning, outside of Columbus, will be renamed Fort Moore after Lieutenant General Hal Moore and his wife, Julia. Both bases were formally named for generals in the Confederate Army. There's a 90-day waiting period until the commission's recommendations can be implemented. But Austin says he wants all the changes made by 2024. And also, let's go Atlanta Braves. That's all. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Also, look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Earlier this month, the ACLU of Georgia sent a letter to Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens and the entire city council. The letter addressed the council's vote to lease the Atlanta City Detention Center to Fulton County Sheriff Department. Now, according to the county and sheriff Patrick Bott, there's overcrowding and safety issues. Well, they're at a critical level, according to them. But no detainees are to be transferred until a jail population review study is actually conducted. And here's what Patrick, here's what Sheriff Patrick Labatt told the council last week. I am moving in a space where people's lives are in danger. Since you met last, we had someone openly murdered in our facility. Come by, I'll show you the videotape if you want to see it. Because sometimes you need to see in order to believe. And just days ago, Fulton County Commission Chair Rob Pitts threatened to pursue legal action if the transfer of those detainees doesn't start immediately. To quote Chair Pitts in a press release, give us the damn keys to the jail, close quote. Meanwhile, as mentioned earlier, the ACLU of Georgia and other human rights organizations are calling on the city to reverse the lease entirely. Of course, they disapprove of the lease agreement as outlined in the letter. Joining me now is Fowler McClure, the Deputy Director for Policy and Advocacy at the ACLU of Georgia. Also, Deputy Director McClure, we want to know this for our listeners, this note of disclosure. The ACLU of Georgia is an underwriter of WABE. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. I'm excited to be here with you and to talk about such an important topic. Well, let's begin with the threats of legal action that you heard uh, I talk about with Fulton County Chair Rob Pitts. What do you make of that? Um, I think what's happening here is people are frustrated on all sides. There is a humanitarian crisis that's happening um, at this facility, Um, but it's a crisis that has been happening for years Mm -hmm. over and over. And there needs to be 
a better resolution. Ultimately doing the same thing over and over isn't um, going to get you different results. And so I don't make much of the threat of litigation considering by the time you even get all of that up and going, you know, the 90 days will be probably over anyway. And your reaction to what the sheriff had to say regarding a murder that just took place? Yes. So while overcrowding and other issues um, potentially may have, I don't even say led to that. Um, some of the other concerns are lack of staffing, mm-hmm. right? I believe in the past, the sheriff himself has said, you know, staffing levels like many um police and jurisdictions at this time, right? It's just, it's hard for a lot of jurisdictions. And so perhaps there are other factors, but ultimately some of the things that we are thinking about is if you change policies and then you have less people in the jail, then theoretically we think that that shouldn't happen. Have you personally, have you been inside Fulton County's jails or are you seeing firsthand what the sheriff and some of the commissioners and obviously Chairman Pitts say is overcrowding, it's dangerous. Have you been inside? So I have not been inside the jail recently. I, in prior, I guess, life before being the deputy director, I have been a criminal defense attorney. And I'm going to be honest, I didn't like really visiting uh, the Rice Street, Fulton County Jail mm-hmm. as an attorney, right? There's definitely, um, but I have not I have not visited recently mm-hmm. to see the issues, but these are some of the same issues that have been going on for like the past 30 years. Um, folks have been on boats on the floor for a long time. You all say in the letter, quote, this is a dangerously misguided and short-sighted decision. The Fulton County Sheriff claims that additional space is needed to alleviate alleviate overcrowding in his jails, but Fulton County's claim of overcrowding is a manufactured crisis. Can you take that a little bit further for our listeners? Yes, we believe it's a manufactured crisis because through policy changes, there wouldn't be that many people in the jail. They continue to get sued over and over um, for these conditions, and then they keep doing the same things. Um, And what's important to note is a lot of the focus has been on the Fulton County Jail, the Rice Street location, but the South Fulton Annex where the women are held is Mm -hmm. also overcrowded. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, even after this lease goes through, for the 700 beds, considering they need to move the women first, there's still going to be people on the floor um, at Rice Street. So it's not even solving the problem that it's claiming to solve. Advocates who are in favor of this lease not happening say that if there are policies and procedures in place that would reduce the number of detainees based on what their charges are for low-level offense, non-life-threatening, non-critical, I guess, offenses, then you wouldn't have the overcrowding. Is that something that you all also support? Absolutely. I think COVID showed us a lot. It definitely added to the backlog in the court system, which is some parts of this overcrowding, but it also showed us that we can do the justice system in a different way. Um, A lot of people during that times in various jurisdictions were not being um, booked for misdemeanors. I believe Chatham County still doesn't book for misdemeanors. Mm-hmm. Um, there can be a greater use of the pre-arrest diversion program and making sure to use the vertible offenses. Um, there can be a more use of using the municipal ordinances that the city of Atlanta put into effect um, that can be cite and release versus arresting under state charges. Mm-hmm. So we think with you know implementing several of these things um, that it can significantly reduce the overcrowding problem. If you haven't, and I don't know, have you had any conversations with folks on the other side, uh, any of the commissioners who are also in line with what you all want or Patrick Labonte, and is there any compromise in between them? So I, we have not had direct conversations. Obviously, we've been in some of the same rooms and done public speaking and speaking up on different sides. Um, I do want to definitely note that we agree with a lot of what the sheriff is saying. Mm-hmm. We just disagree on the solution. Um, and he is correct in a lot of the problems 
occur before people get to the jail, mm -hmm. right? And so there's a lot of things out of the situation, in this situation rather, that are out of his control. And we absolutely understand that. Um, but we have not had conversations with him directly, um, but we definitely do not see him as like an enemy or anything mm -hmm. in this in this situation. We do want to come together to provide solutions. Um, I think the sheriff is, he says some things like, perhaps we can just do the study and start moving people at the same time. Um, but our position is anytime you're adding more beds, you're just continuing to magnify the crisis. And the more bed space and you more have, then you're just gonna fill it up with more people versus moving into the other direction with concrete policy change that will stop us from being in this situation mm -hmm. again. What role do you think you all could play? I mean, we're all familiar with, with what you all do with the ACLU of Georgia, but in this space, and a listener, I'm sure you can understand, saying, okay, well, you all have signed on to this letter with 60-something other human rights organizations, but what role can you all, do you think you can play in, in trying to be a mediator or help both sides come together? Or is it just too late? Because you've heard what the sheriff said and you heard what Rob Pitt said, he wants the damn keys. Those are his words, not mine. So, <laughs> So I never think, it's too late, right? Um, I do think we can be sort of the arbitrators or mediators in this in this sense, using um, data and policy and just like really looking at um, what's happening and then having conversations with folks about best practices and how we get there. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's just hard because it's almost forcing people to think out of the box and do something in a different way than they've always done it. and sometimes that's scary. So I really do think that with more conversations, um, we can come to some agreements. And I think that it's that's why it's important for this jail data study mm -hmm. to happen and for it to happen from the Justice Policy Review Board, which also has members from the Sheriff's Office on this, right? It mm -hmm. has members from the Sheriff's Office, Atlanta City Council, the DA's office. So all the players in this, judges, um, can come together and really like look at the data and who is in the jail and why. And we can come up with some real solutions to like, do these people need to be there? So let's wait till the 90 days is over. Have everyone look at the study who's all involved, see if there's some solutions. And then if there's still a need to transfer some of these detainees, you all be okay with that, but not 700. I believe that's the number. So I'm going to be honest, we're not going to be okay with transferring any of them. Um, part of the concern is mm -hmm. once you start transferring people, the ultimate goal and purpose of turning this into a center for equity and mm -hmm. other things is not going to happen. Um, even though even though it's being said that it's still going to happen, I think it just mm -hmm. makes it a lot harder, right, to... Um, and so, and then also, you know, there's been a council member to introduce legislation to sort of have this equity center, perhaps at the medical center mm -hmm. um, campus, which they're like, wouldn't we rather have that be a hospital? Shouldn't we be fighting for that to stay a hospital? Um, so I don't think we would ever uh -huh. uh, want the transfer or expansion of jail beds and mass incarceration, but I do think we can come to some agreements on policy change and policy solutions. Will you look at that review study as well? You all look through that, comb through that? Because if it, if it gives you some numbers, some concrete numbers, and it could be half, I don't know what the number could be, that says perhaps there is a this X number of detainees that could actually be released because of the low-level charges or offenses, what have you, then th th is that something that you all want to do? Absolutely. And we would definitely advocate if it says it's, you know, 300 people that could have been diverted to PAD or pre-rest diversion rather that were in um, in on these divertible charges only. And if we can reduce those 300 and then, you know, maybe these people over here with, you know, these lower bond amounts that they just can't afford, mm -hmm. um, we will absolutely advocate for that. And I think until we're always going to continue to advocate for the repeal of the lease, I believe even once it goes through, um, after this, uh, well, after the 90 days, mm -hmm. I think we would still argue that perhaps, you know, it can be terminated if we do X, Y, Z, right? How optimistic are you, though, uh, Deputy Director McClure, that this lease will be reversed? I mean, the, the vote was... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I am an eternal optimist. However, um, I, I do think it's it's going to go through in the sense of the way that the ordinance itself was written. It says that you know the study just has to be completed. The mm-hmm. study, the results of the study, don't actually change the lease, mm-hmm. and so it would actually need um, a council person to introduce a repeal. And I mean, we're definitely going to keep working on that and hope that that can happen. Fallon McClure is the Deputy Director for Policy and Advocacy at the ACLU of Georgia. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank it's you. It's an ongoing community issue, which we'll continue to cover. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you. From WABE in Atlanta, Closer Look continues. I'm Rose Scott. Last year, the Pew Research Center analyzed some data from the Federal Reserve Board regarding first-generation college graduates. Now, for listeners not familiar with that term, first-generation college graduates are defined as those who have no parent with a bachelor's degree, and sometimes in their entire generations before. It's estimated nearly a third of undergraduate students in the U.S. are first-generation college students. And then there's this from the Brookings Institution. First-gen students warrant more support than they get financially and beyond. But even before many students graduate high school, their pathway to college requires resources. And that's where Achieve Atlanta comes in. Their mission, as stated, quote, to help Atlanta public school students access, afford, and earn post-secondary credentials. And a recent major gift will help the organization continue that mission. So join me now to talk more about Achieve Atlanta, founding CEO and current executive director, Tina Fernandez. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rose. Thanks so much for having me. Gotta ask you this. Do you just get an email that says, Director <laughs> Fernandez, I have a check coming for $8 million to help your organization? How does that happen? What, what, did they send you a text? Did they call yeah. you? How does um, it happen? It's, a, it, it's actually a really good story. Um, so I... Um, I actually took a few weeks this summer to take a break. You know, um, COVID's been hard on all of us, Mm -hmm. um, especially those involved in education. And so um, I took a a little um, sabbatical and I went to Spain and was walking the Camino Santiago, which is a 500 mile pilgrimage across the northern northern part of Spain. Mm. And I was on my way to um, mass that afternoon in a little Spanish town. And I got a voicemail saying, um, hi, this is Mesha Fertina Fernandez. Uh, we're representing an anonymous donor and um, would like to speak to you as soon as possible. And I had made a decision I was not going to work on this trip, but mm-hmm. I decided I should take that call. And so, <laughs> so I called um, I called the person back and they, you know, the person on the other line said, um, I'm a representative of McKinsey Scott and um, we've done some research on your organization. She believes in your mission and what you do. And um, she would like to make an investment of $8 million um, to achieve Atlanta. So it, it literally felt like it came out of the sky. And, uh, and I, you know, I had to ask again, like, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Did you <laughs> and, say, is uh, this a joke? Is this my cousin? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I said was, did you say a million or 8 million? You know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and um, they repeated 8 million and, um, and it just was super exciting. Um, you know, went to church immediately afterwards. And- <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for for the blessing. Um, but we are we are honored. We're humbled, um, and and really, you know, we see this gift as an affirmation of the work that that Achieve Atlanta and its partners have done over the last seven and a half years mm-hmm. to make sure that Atlanta public school students um, have the opportunity to go and earn a post secondary credential. Um, and so we're just we we're. Um, we accept the gift on behalf of this entire community mm-hmm. um, and and are really adamant about using the gift in a way that's going to help increase our impact. And to be clear, you all did not uh, submit anything. You had no idea this was coming. No. Um, so, you know, if if you've been following McKinsey Scott, she's been making these gifts. Y- yes, um, we know. For, we, yeah. yeah. yeah she's been, <laughs> for a couple of years. Yes. She's, and um and there's no application process. Um, what I will say is that about two years ago, got another call um, uh, from a consulting firm 
and they said, you know, we'd like to talk to you. We represent an anonymous donor who's interested in Achieve Atlanta. And so I took the call. This was a couple of years ago when she had just started making gifts. So it wasn't really on my radar. I told them about Achieve Atlanta. We had just done a growth strategy process, shared, you know, our plans for the future. And then that was it. And we and never heard back. And um, a couple of times I thought, I wonder if that was, mm-hmm. you know, Mackenzie Scott's folks. Sure. And then, you know, but I just kind of figured we were not in her giving priorities. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was it. There was no application. You know, we didn't reach out to anybody. Um, and uh, it was a pretty, pretty interesting interesting process. Let's back up a little bit for our listeners who may not be familiar with Achieve Atlanta. You are the founding CEO. How did all this come back? What's the backstory of Achieve Atlanta? Yeah, so back in 2014, um, a group of community leaders uh, that included the the Joseph B. Whitehead Foundation, the Community Foundation of Greater Atlanta, um, and um, APS, um, and the leaders of those organizations at that time, decided that they wanted to take a look at what was the state of post-secondary degree attainment for Atlanta public school students. Mm -hmm. So they commissioned a study, and um, the researchers found that at that time in 2014, only 14% of incoming Atlanta public school high schoolers were projected to earn a post-secondary credential of any kind within six years of their graduation. That included a technical, a two-year, or a four-year degree. 14%. 14%, yes, which is abysmally low. And then when you consider that 65% of the jobs in, in the state of Georgia in two years, 65% of the jobs in this state will require some sort of post-secondary credential. When you consider that Atlanta ranks as you know one of the cities with the highest income inequality mm-hmm. lowest social mobility like this is this was a a, a crisis mm-hmm. um that was finally uncovered through this study and so the whitehead foundation did something that was really unprecedented for them at the time they made a significant investment to launch an organization that would be singularly focused on closing the degree attainment gap for mm-hmm. atlanta public school students and that was the genesis of achieve atlanta and i was brought on as the founding executive director If we hear all these statistics, and that's going back to 2014 and that 14%, Mm -hmm. and I know folks may have questions about, you know, how they measure that, what those metrics are involved, but I imagine you have to look at uh, financial stability in the household, probably the poverty level as well. I I covered Atlanta Public Schools for a lot of years, and I don't know if this number has changed, but I know for a while I kept reporting between that 74 and 79% of the students in APS were at the poverty level. So I don't know that, if that's changed at all. But that is a metric that, that obviously when we talk about uh, post-secondary folks, kids who want to go to college and maybe in, and, and have the aptitude for it. Yeah, but the absolutely. Fin- but the, it's the financial. Yes. And it's also just having resources to guiding students to know that they too have an opportunity and they can graduate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of those things are true, and that remains true for the district in terms of the demographics. And so what we did was we set out to say, okay, well, what are the barriers, right? What's getting in the way of like amazing, wonderful students who should have the opportunity to pursue their life streams? What's getting in their Mm -hmm. way? So one was the ability to actually go through the whole college advising process and Mm -hmm. apply for college. And if you've ever helped a student apply for college, you know it is massively complicated, right? And so what we did was um, we saw that there was a real gap in um, the number of advisors who could help students at APS. And this is across the state of Georgia. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got about, the ratio is typically one counselor to every 400 students across um, high schools in the state. And when Mm -hmm. you think about the fact that counselors aren't just doing college advising, Mm -hmm. they're also doing crisis management. They're also doing helping students graduate from high school. I mean, they're massively Mm -hmm. overworked. Um, You know, you can't, you can't, adequately give the student the, the resources they need to be able to um, apply to college. So we partnered with the College Advising Corps, which is a national organization that brings in recent college graduates, trains them, and then places them in high schools to be doing nothing but college advising. We help fund the organization. And over the last seven and a half years, we've placed approximately 27 college advisors at all APS high schools every year to help with the college advising process. So that was a big win for us. Mm -hmm. But the other thing, Rose, is that 
the cost of college, and we all know this, has just become prohibited, especially for students who come from families of low income. Mm -hmm. And so just to give you a sense, right, the typical cost per year to go to a Georgia public institution is about $20,000 a year. Mm -hmm. That includes tuition, room and board, books, fees, etc. right? Many of our families don't make $20,000 a year, mm-hmm. right? Many of our families can contribute $0 towards the cost of a college education. And so when you also consider that Georgia is still one of two states in the country that does not have comprehensive need-based financial aid, then this is a non-starter for so many families. And I want to stop you there because I know someone listening is saying, well, what about the HOPE scholarship? And I'll let you take that. Yeah, so the HOPE scholarship, um, you know, is a merit-based scholarship, and it's actually pretty complicated because you've got to have a certain GPA in a certain number of core classes, and it's not it's not that easy to, to um, qualify for the HOPE scholarship, and then many students lose it after the first year. We actually did an analysis, and what we found was that back in 2014, only about a third of students from APS who were going to college mm-hmm. were going with the HOPE scholarship, and, and um, GBPI has put out a ton of data that shows that most students who get the HOPE scholarship in the state of Georgia are middle and high income students. And so low-income students, students um, who are living in poverty, are not likely to access the HOPE scholarship. And that's got to change if we want the state to be the thriving economic engine that we want it to be. And you all help not only with that, but you have scholarships of your own. We do. And so we we designed um, a scholarship program based on evidence and best practices. And basically, our scholarship program is what we think the state of Georgia should have. And so we run the largest need-based scholarship program in the state. Mm-hmm. We've been doing that again for seven years. And, um, and it, we've seen tremendous returns on our investment. By the end of this year, we'll have over a thousand college graduates that have graduated from APS. And almost equally as important is that they are graduating with less debt than their peers across the state. And we know that that matters for being able to build wealth and generational wealth for our families. So, um, you know, where we every legislative session, we are um, we, we come and testify. We're happy to share information and data. Um, we're very excited about the, the, the small but significant move that the legislative session made that during the last session mm-hmm. to open up um, a need based completion grant program. And we hope that that continues to grow often with organizations or nonprofits or what have you you know operating costs can be a little bit higher sometimes than actually goes to the resources so for those listening who may have a question okay uh, how much of your actual funding does go toward the student and and you know can you give a comparison in terms of operating costs yeah that's a great question um so our operating budget is about i would say six and a half to seven million dollars a year and that money goes to fund multiple partnerships um, with nonprofits who are serving students. So we mm-hmm. fund the College Advising Corps to do advising. We fund One Goal, who also does advising for juniors and seniors. We pay for the SAT for all of the students at APS to take it for free their junior year. Um, we also fund um, organizations that help support the students once they're in college. We fund an organization called Beyond 12. We fund another organization called Edutech. Um, and so I would say from our operating budget, I, about 80% of the those dollars mm-hmm. go to support services that are going directly to the students. Now, in addition to our operating, we've got our scholarship budget. And every year we give out about between seven and eight million dollars worth of scholarships. And that money is a hundred percent going to the students. So seven our scholarship to eight million fund, a year? A year, yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. So we've given nearly forty million dollars in scholarships since we started. So with this eight million dollar gift from philanthropist Mackenzie Scott, just gonna add that to the pot. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a good question, right? So it's a it's a big gift. It's a significant gift. Um, Like I said, we think it's an affirmation of our work and it is a small percentage of, you know, what it takes to help support students and then help them pay for college. And so the the phenomenal thing about this gift is that it's unrestricted. Um, And so we are 
going to go through a comprehensive planning process where we're going to talk to our funders, we're going to talk to APS, we're going to look at our internal, um, you know, operations and think about how can we best use this money to strengthen our partnerships, to strengthen the work that we're doing for students. We are really blessed that we've got um, support from the Whitehead Foundation and the Whitehead Foundation is funding the scholarships and has been funding them since the beginning. And, um, you know, Atlanta is really, really lucky to have um, such a funder investing so much in its students. I just did a conversation, moderated a conversation last Friday with Mayor Dickens and, and some other folks, Rafael Bostic from the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. And, and of course, the, the conversation centered around closing, you know, the the wealth gap or closing the income inequality act uh, gap. And I talked about, you know, where does it begin? You know, and yep. everyone agreed that, well, Atlanta can lead the way. Atlanta has the tools. And I always ask questions about from federal to state to local. But yep. when it comes to talking about realistically trying to close that wealth gap or close that prosperity gap or whatever gap folks want to call it because we know it's a gap, mm-hmm. um, how important are organizations or initiatives like what you all are doing because you close the gap by making sure folks don't start life by being at the end of the gap on the lower end of it if that makes sense yeah totally i mean first of all thank you for asking those questions and um i you know i just love your show and i love the fact that you're always asking the tough questions um Our philosophy is that there is not one organization or one sector that's going to do it on its own, right? So part of what we think is our secret sauce is this belief in cross-sector collaboration. And so what we operate to do is to bring all the different sectors together and to help create a common vision with some common goals that we actually hold ourselves mutually accountable to meet and we track data obsessively um, and we work with our partners. So we work with the district, we work Mm -hmm. with nonprofits, we have partnerships with higher education organizations across the state. And now we're starting to work with the Georgia Chamber, the Metro Chamber and um, organizations around now the pipeline to workforce. But we, you know, this needs to be a an issue that we are all trying to solve as a community, as a collective. And instead of pointing fingers around, well, whose fault is it? Like we all need to take our share of responsibility for being able to educate our kids and get them into lives of opportunity. And I want to ask you this, uh, Tina Fernandez, because obviously with the pandemic, it interrupted a, a lot of. Let's be clear. It interrupted all of our normalcy here. Had you all been able to assess in terms of how this affected students that you all have been helping? Was there any uh, was there any lag or any any challenges you all had these last two years? Absolutely. Um, And and that's this is a really important thing. Right. So so. You know, the good news is um, Georgia State, um, Georgia Policy Labs is about to release an evaluation in the next month that will show that our our services have made a statistically significant impact on students' ability to persist and complete college. We're very excited about that. The bad news is, is that COVID has had such a tremendous impact on students' ability to go to college, but not just that. Um, I think, you know, you read this every time you turn on, you know, you, you read the news or you turn on, turn on the news is that people are suffering. People are in post-traumatic stress disorder. People are, you know, um, low motivation, low, low grade depression. And our young people have especially suffered because of the pandemic, because of isolation, because of losing some very important developmental years where you're socializing and learning the skills that you need to learn to leave home. And so what we've seen is that our students have reached back out to Achieve Atlanta, often with with mental health um, Mm -hmm. crisis, with um, feelings of loneliness, with feelings of not belonging, with wondering whether or not they can actually make it through. And so what we're doing is we're rallying um, support services, rallying our partners to to support and connect with our Mm -hmm. students because they need that to be able to stay on track and believe that they can finish. And finally, Tina, why do you do this work? I do this work um, for a couple of reasons. One of them is personal is I, you know, my, I grew up in a very low income community in South Texas, and I was very fortunate to be able to get an, a great education. Mm-hmm. And it literally changed my life. It changed the life of my family. My mother's an immigrant from Mexico. She got her GED when I was 15 years old. And, um, and, you know, it was, um, I personally have benefited from being able to get an education. And I want to say that 
for me, education, one, it, it is an avenue to opportunity and we need it and we need the skills and we need the competencies to be able to mm -hmm. work. But I truly believe that education is also liberation, that it helps you understand your place in the world and that you matter and that you have agency. And, and so that is why I do this work because I just believe that every young person in this country should have the ability to live into their full potential. And there are so many folks who agree with that. Achieve Atlanta founding CEO and current executive director T Tina Fernandez talking about that $8 million gift, but even more, the mission that you all have been doing for the last few years. Thank you so much for helping so many students in our Atlanta area. And a note of disclosure, WAB's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. Thank you, Director Fernandez. Thank you, Rose. Thank you. And you're listening to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Today, it's day one for the Atlanta Citizen Review Board's new 24-hour complaints online portal. Now, they say it's fast, convenient, and secure. So let's talk about it with longtime executive director Samuel Reed II. Welcome back to the program. It's been a minute. Hi, welcome. Thank you for having me on today. So let's begin here for those not familiar with the Atlanta Citizen Review Board. What do you all do? Yes, we are an independent investigative agency of the city of Atlanta authorized to investigate um, citizen complaints against Atlanta police and corrections officers. We also mediate complaints between citizens and officers mm -hmm. and provide um, outreach and community engagement. Now, you all, just for clarity, you all, do you do the investigation based on a complaint or do you rate the complaint to see if it needs to be escalated to a further for further review or a different level. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we receive the complaint. We assess the complaint and we conduct in-house investigations with our professional investigators. And then once that complaint is investigated, then it's sent to the citizen board, mm -hmm. which who actually makes the decision on the complaint. And then as it works its way through the process, then it goes to the police chief for a disciplinary decision if one is needed. So with this new online portal, this 24 hours, this is what made you all, what prompted you all to, to come up with this? Yes. Um, <clears throat> our effort has always been listening to the community, being able to increase community members' access to the work of the agency. Mm -hmm. So with this portal, it will not only allow citizens to file a complaint and upload video and uh, audio uh, photos. One of the additional benefits of it is providing citizens the opportunity to be able to check on the status of their complaint and mm -hmm. receive statuses of the complaint at any time. So the two things that can happen whenever we as the complaint moves through the process, a notification would be sent to the citizens so they'll mm -hmm. be aware of where their complaint is in the process. The second thing is if a citizen is just wondering what's happening with their complaint because maybe it's been sitting in the process for a while, they can go online using the link or the reference ID number and be able to find out who's investigating a complaint and where it is in the process. And this process doesn't replace, I guess we could call it the old fashioned way with the written or actually going downtown. You folks can still do that, correct? Yes, it doesn't replace it. This is an enhancement of us providing additional services to the citizens. Now, you all, it went live today. Have you been on it? Are there any kinks? We, we just heard earlier about some hacks with the uh, some airports <laughs> throughout the nation. Let's talk about security here. There's obviously people's information, some sensitive information. I'm hoping y'all's yes. IT department is very robust. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. This, this, this system has uh, a high level of uh, encryption that um, IPRO is providing and the city, of course, has really um, picked up on increasing uh, internet security um, for all of the all of the platforms that's on the city. You all say this will be faster and, and safer. So can you give an idea uh, for our listeners, like how long it would take for maybe from when someone first filed a complaint, uh, maybe against an officer or had a situation to when it they finally got some type of response. How long was that waiting period? Yes. Um, when we talk about 
efficiency and, and, and the timeline. From the time the person files the complaint through the system, it, it, it is received in our case management system much quicker. Now, the investigation, though, is depends, again, on the complexity of the complaint. That's not changing. If, it's, uh, if it involves multiple officers, multiple allegations, it still is going to have to go through a thorough investigation um, as it relates to a citizen being able to get uh, information related to their complaint. That will be quicker and seamless. Well, it, it, let's back up a little bit because you said it quicker and seamless. But are we talking because how long does an investigation usually last for a complaint, whether they're going to do this process or the, the other way? Yes. Is that usually a, a week, a month? No, or does, it, does no, it depend on the the allegation or the complaint? Yes, yes, yes. It depends on the allegation. That 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 the two things related to the length of an investigation. Mm -hmm. One is the uh, number of investigators available to investigate the complaint, and two, the complexity of the complaint. When you're talking about a one-on-one -on -one situation, one officer, one citizen, mm -hmm. um, you can it can work through the process faster. Okay. Of course, that still depends on the number of investigators involved. Now, if you're talking about multiple investigators, I mean, multiple officers, multiple allegations, the seriousness of the investig of the uh, allegations, that's going to extend it. Our goal is to try to have every investigation completed in under 180 days. We continue to work that down mm -hmm. to 90 days. That's where I want to ultimately be, 90 days. Let me ask you this. The investigators, are they employed by the city of Atlanta or the police department, or is it an outside entity here that does this investigation? They are employed by the city of Atlanta. They are <clears throat> employed with the Atlanta Citizen Review Board. Our process is in-house, separate from the police department. Our investigators call in the, in the, in the officers, review all the video footage, the documents that's associated with it, interview witnesses and the complainants. Mm -hmm. We do all of that in-house with our investigators. On an annual basis, D Director Reed, how many complaints, allegations do you all investigate or, or at least have to review? Yes, we receive about, it averages about 150, give or take. Now that has, that dipped um, during the COVID, but mm -hmm. we see it slowly coming back up. Um, and as we continue to do our outreach and let people know about us, that's one of those challenges that we always have to work with. I'm curious, are there other successful, that's the word I want to focus on, are there other successful models of this portal that you know of in other cities? And did you all base this on another city? Um, there, there are some cities that are researching portals and I know that um, IPRO is the ones that we use for our mm -hmm. case management system. And they have been providing portal access to um, some law enforcement agencies. However, when we started a couple of years ago researching that we wanted to provide this access to the citizens, mm -hmm. we approached uh, IPRO and we actually um, provided some very good information to them so that they can start working on a portal that meets not only our needs, but also law enforcement's needs. So mm -hmm. we have been sort of in, the, in, the, in the, um, the forefront of this, especially for civilian oversight, and we talked about for the law, law enforcement. Mm -hmm. You and I have had this conversation before because there are some, and I guess for lack of a, a, of a different word, powers or authorities that you all would like to have, but you don't because um, you all do not have subpoena power, obviously. So a, an officer is not obligated to speak with you all, correct? Or your investigators, correct? No, no. Um, we do have subpoena power. Oh, you do now? That was, yeah. Well, that was granted in 2010. Okay. Um, here's the thing. Officers police policy requires them to participate in our investigations. Our ordinance requires them to participate in our investigations. So we haven't had any issues uh, related to officers participating in the investigation. Mm -hmm. That was something that occurred many, many years ago when the agency first started. 
but we have subpoena power now. We just haven't had to use it. Okay. Related to the things inside the city and access to the office. Do you have every authority or power that you would feel like you need, but you still need that you don't have? Uh, there's one power that we uh, we would like to have that we don't have. And, and that is being able to have stronger influence on what happens with an officer okay um related to our complaints now we'll say this since 2020 the rate of agreement on sustained complaints on the rate of agreement from the apd the atlanta police department on the acrb sustained complaints mm -hmm. has been 65 70 80 percent at one time now i bring that up because that is unheard of when you talk about civilian oversight and the rate of agreement with the, the rate of the police department's agreement with an agency. Well, let's now, talk about remember, the well, let's talk about the agreement because the agreement could yeah. be that there was no wrongdoing or that the officer or officers followed department rules and compliance or I mean, and I think that matters no. to some folks. Does that, to me? Mm -hmm. When I talk about rate of agreement, it's about on sustained complaints. Okay. Yeah, people can agree that the officer didn't do anything wrong. There's no there's no problem with that agreement, right? But it's this, it's it's where you have evidence that something has gone wrong that you need to look at the rate of agreement because that's where you start talking about accountability and making things change. Now, prior to 2020, as you may recall, a few years ago, mm -hmm. we were hovering around 20%, 30% rate of agreement. And that was that was ridiculously low. In 2020, the, the Atlanta City Council changed the ordinance to put some more uh, heft behind what we're able to do. And fortunately, the police department has agreed with our sustained findings mm -hmm. like i said in the 60 70 80 percent that's what ideally it should be 75 percent and higher gotcha the website is acrbgov.org again that is for folks to file an, a complaint an online complaint with the atlanta citizen review board director reed thank you so much for taking time i really appreciate it well thank you miss scott for having having me on it's always a pleasure to be able to come on and, and share this information with the citizens. We will be bringing out, uh, communicating more about the public portal access. Um, so you can go through the website or the public portal. Both of those are going to be available and we still take walk-ins and phone calls. 404-865-8622. We'll have that information on our website. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.